One of the things that I've had to learn as an entrepreneur is that when there's problems and challenges that seem insurmountable, oftentimes those represent some of the best opportunities to create value. I'm not going to stop until I win my category. That's like my mentality right now. And I've inadvertently, like along the way, built one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing B2B technology company in online sports betting in 2022. There was more money spent by consumers on gambling on sports than there was in ride sharing, on cups of coffee, on streaming, more on betting on sports. So how did you and Jake Paul get connected to become co-founders? Yeah, so a few years ago, um... Joey, welcome to the podcast, man. Happy to have you. Yeah, good to be on, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so right before this, we want to tell a quick story. So, Joey, you drink ketones on a, you said, daily basis? Uh, yeah. Here, just quickly showing Ketone IQ, HVMN, 305 Ventures portfolio company. So. Nice. So give me a brief background because I just tried this and for yeah. some reason I thought it was going to taste good and I, I did a quick mini waterfall and it was brutal, but yeah. I also didn't expect I did. I, yeah. I did not give you ample heads up. So sorry about that. But, um, but no, I mean the idea is it like you drink thirty five milliliters of it and it puts your body and your brain like into a state of ketosis without having to do like a keto diet. And nice. um, I use it as like a supplement to coffee. I still drink coffee. I don't. You know, I'm not in a position where I can fully replace caffeine right now, but. It's a good way of just having your brain wired a little bit better. I, I take like a sip of it before like a meeting or, yes. um, yeah, it's a way to just stay focused. Yeah. It's a, it's a supplement I highly recommend. <clears throat> so you'll take a sip just throughout the day. Like yeah. will you finish an entire bottle of this daily or maybe like No, half? no, it's 35 milliliters of serving and typically I'll like sip on 15 milliliters here and there and yeah. just like a good way like before a meeting to like feel a little bit more ant. So yeah, you see yeah. my, my ketones, my coffee and my water. That's pretty much what I'm on. Um, you know, much of the day. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, I think I'm starting to feel something. Yeah. So, so we'll be good for this. Yeah, podcast. So we're, we're both going to be amped for, yeah. uh, for this one. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. So I've known you for like a year, year and a half yeah. now, and I want to kind of just jump into your, your initial start. Obviously, for those of you who don't know, Joey is the co-founder of Better with Jake Paul, and you guys are doing great things there. And we're going to get to that, but I want to talk about kind of before that, which is kind of where you got started, right? And I think the big inflection point is the Thiel Fellow. So if you want to share some more in terms of like what that program is and, and what you did to apply to get there, because I know it's very tough to, to get into that alone. Yeah, it's it's a competitive process. I could I could share a little bit more about my background. So um, I was born and raised actually down here in South Florida in Broward County, which is uh, just a, a little bit north. It's the county north of Miami Dade County. And um, you know, as a kid, it was always my objective to like I, I read a lot of like Wikipedia pages and I saw like the most successful political leaders and business leaders. One of the common denominators that they had. And I think this is problematic, by the way. But what I realized while I was like 14 or 15 was that a lot of them, a disproportionate amount of them went to um, like Ivy League universities. That's what I noticed. So I in high school, I was very focused on getting into an Ivy League school. And my plan was, you know, let me study something that I'm really good at and that I like so that I could get a 4.0 GPA, get a job at Goldman Sachs, 
get that six figure income and then sort of figure it out from there because I didn't come from money and that seemed like the most the highest probability chance of success um, to to uh, you know start life with some modicum of financial freedom. So went to Columbia, um, studied history, uh, focused on nineteenth century American history. Um, was doing really well, you know, made dean's list my freshman year, both semesters, and it was all going according to plan. And then um, right around when I started school, these companies called FanDuel and DraftKings started getting all this media attention and doing all this marketing. And I remember somebody in my family who I played fantasy baseball with as a kid, which was my, you know, it was my favorite hobby growing up, playing fantasy sports, fantasy baseball, like really specific five by five NL only rotisserie fantasy baseball um, with like we would draft minor league players and put them in our farm. Like we were really into this shit. And, um, and so when these companies came around and started using them, I'm like, holy shit, FanDuel, DraftKings, Daily Fantasy Sports, this is like the best idea ever because you basically took my favorite hobby and the favorite hobby of not just me, but tens of millions of, of Americans in this country. And they introduced instant gratification of the consumer experience by making it not, you didn't have to wait until the end of the season to know whether or not you won or lost your fantasy contest, but rather that day you'd enter a lineup based on that day's games and you would compete against other people and you'd win cash prizes. So not only did they introduce instant gratification, but they introduced like this real money gaming component to it. And I started using it. I became just super interested in the product experience and the business opportunity around it because I knew that the same feeling that I was feeling was a feeling that probably tens of millions of Americans were starting to feel, which is that this is one of the most compelling consumer experiences, but the product experience felt way too, um, you know, complicated, intimidating, transactional for, you know, like the mass market casual sports fan. Like I was, I remember thinking to myself, like what normal sports fan and FanDuel started, you know, FanDuel and DraftKings started sponsoring teams and doing all this advertising, like quite literally advertising like car insurance companies. And they're doing all this marketing, but their product experiences felt very much geared toward the hardcore, like gaming customer and quantitatively savvy user. And, um, I just felt like there was an, an opportunity to build, a casual fan, simple, intuitive, easy to use daily fantasy sports platform, which which is when I started my first business called DraftPot, and um, so we so I started working on that during my sophomore year at school. I became just obsessed with the business, and I remember like I I, I went from like my Columbia four O strategy, Dean's List strategy to like. I struggled making it to class and I remember I like missed a final exam in one class because I like prioritized an investor meeting and um, I just couldn't focus on school anymore because I was so obsessed with building this company and I just kind of kept going with it and you know after my sophomore year I took a gap year so I think I'm technically on my like eighth or ninth gap year right now <laughs> um, although I don't know if they'll take me back at this point but um, so I, so I started working on the project and then the people from the Teal Fellowship uh, heard about what I was doing. Like Forbes did this piece on us, which like got some attention because we raised a couple million dollars as like, you know, dropout college students and we were going after a big market. So it was like an interesting enough uh, narrative. So the Teal Fellowship people reached out to me and they, they invited me to San Francisco to meet with them. And then I got a call from them like a week later and, and, and the person who was running it at the time 
He was like, do you want the Teal Fellowship? It's $100,000. And I'm like, great, how much equity do you want? And he's like, there's no there's no equity. Like, we're just going to send you $12,500 a quarter. And um, we just want to check up on you once a month and um, monitor sort of, you know, just track your progress. And we're here to help. We have a network. Um, you know, Peter Thiel obviously is one of the best venture capitalists, if not the venture best venture capitalist of our times. Um, so with that comes like credibility and a network. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's how I got this. So that's some of my background and then how I got involved with the fellowship specifically. Um, and then ultimately what ended up happening with the daily fantasy business, just to sort of close the loop on that is, you know, we, we launched the alpha product in, 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 uh, January of 2015, we were improving the product experience throughout 2015. We were gaining like revenue traction. It was going well. We were way too aggressive with our customer acquisition budget around NFL 2015 because this business, as you can imagine, has like NFL is king in in the United States. So there's a seasonality component where like Q3, Q4 things start really ramping up. So we were aggressive trying to acquire customers for during the football season and it was going really well. We were going to raise growth financing in the form of Series A. And that's what DraftKings and FanDuel's playbook was at the time. It was like kind of grow, 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 like pump top line metrics. And because it was like a market share grabbing game at the time. And our model was working to some extent. Like we really did sort of innovate within casual sports fans and launching a, an intuitive platform for for mainstream consumers. And um, in, in mid-October of 2015, there was like an insider trading scandal where an employee of um, – of, of DraftKings used proprietary ownership data on like quarterbacks to win a bunch of money on FanDuel. He won like 200K. And this led to like an FBI investigation of the category. This led to a series of dozens of cease and desist letters le- led by the Attorney General of New York. So there was a lot of regulatory turmoil in the category. And that regulatory turmoil did not end until the Supreme Court repealed the federal ban on sports betting um, in May of 2018. So it lasted for like, you know, two and a half years. But it basically made the business just. I couldn't raise capital. It was very difficult. So it wasn't like a big financially successful outcome. We uh, sold the assets to another smaller company in the space. But through that experience, I um, got the idea for starting SimpleBet, which was my company before Better. And I actually used the Teal Fellowship money to start SimpleBet and then ultimately spun out Better from SimpleBet. And and that's what I'm focused on today. So I'll stop rambling there. But that's some of the background. And, you know, effectively, I've been just ever since I sort of went down this rabbit hole of like trying to create the dominant consumer product experience in sports gaming in the United States, I've kind of been working on solving the exact same problem for like a decade. And it's been a journey that I feel like I'm still just getting started in. That's amazing. That's amazing. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there and I'm going to, I'm going to take it step by step. So the, the first thing I think that was very interesting that you, you mentioned is, and I think this is very relatable for anyone watching is you were quote unquote almost destined or had a very linear path in mind growing up, right? In terms of you knew you wanted to get into an Ivy League and you knew you wanted to eventually work at Goldman Sachs and like that was or your like the path. equivalent. The like equivalent. A, yeah. Right. Yeah. So what what made you, you know, obviously I know you were passionate about wanting to start the business, but what made you want to just change your, your thinking 180 where it's like school is not priority more anymore. And then now it's, it's this, right? Because that's a pretty, 
it's a it's a big change and i think it's that's very tough for a lot of people to even like make some sort of mental change like that yeah so honestly when i first started on draft pod as like a project it i didn't start it thinking at the time that i was gonna like fully pivot to being like a tech entrepreneur or startup founder whatever you want to call it it was more it was it was it was more that I thought I was right about a product vision and just the more that I started spending time on it, the more obsessed I became with the problem. And, um, you know, but very initially it was, it was like, I almost thought like it's a thing that could help like my resume when I'm like applying to these jobs. Like that's kind of the initial thinking, which you know, is, is always like the, it's not the right approach. Obviously if you're trying to build something great, but like, honestly, I didn't, I didn't raise money for it right away. Like I just wanted to like build this thing and like see what would happen. And then, but the more and more I went down this path, I just became obsessed with building the business, acquiring customers, uh, you know, product development, the whole, everything that goes into it. So it was like a gradual process. Um, and yeah, I'm just like super determined to ultimately it, it, it started becoming even so. So it, 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 it started becoming even less about money at a certain point. It's like I felt like I was one of the first, if not the first people to like identify this as like a massive opportunity and to go after this problem. And now it's more for me about like winning. Like I'm not going to stop until I like win my category that's like my mentality right now and i've inadvertently like along the way like started what's probably the fastest growing b2b technology company in in the in, in the u.s online sports betting industry which is what simple bet is which was my company right before better um and you know i think that'll be a really good financial outcome um but but my my motivation is coming from winning an industry that i have become really passionate about and kind of obsessed with solving my particular problem but it was a very like gradual process it wasn't like woke up one day and i'm like i'm gonna be a tech founder <laughs> like i never i never i never thought that yeah you know initially that that, that would happen got it so going to today right better you started better i believe a couple years ago uh we formally spun it out of simple bet <laughs> excuse me um october of 2021 really started getting after it in january 2022, 2022. yeah gotcha. so it's been a year and a half almost exactly to right now yeah nice so how did you and jake paul get connected to become co-founders yeah so a few years ago um i went to like a dinner like one of these dinners that um, was organized for like people in technology and, and venture and um, I get there super late and I end up sitting next to this guy, Jeffrey Wu, who actually is the founder of the, the ketone company. And he recently started a VC fund with, with Jake Paul. And I actually, I didn't know any of this at the time. I was just sitting next to him and, um, you know, just started talking about what I was working on. And, and, you know, at the time I was very much focused on simple bed and, um, you know, to give you a little bit of the background on that, to make the story make sense. Um, 
I started Simple Bat, and the reason why it's called Simple Bat is because my vision was not too dissimilar from what I was trying to solve at DraftPot, which um, was to simplify the sports betting user experience. I don't know. Have you bet on sports before? Or are you familiar with the, what these products look like or not? Uh, not really. Okay. Not really. So when you go to a sports book, and this was my first you know, product experience with it. So you go to a sports book. And the, the simplest way to describe it is it kind of feels like an uninterpretable spreadsheet. So sp- spreadsheet because it's a bunch of like the UI is a bunch of like tables, lists, grids. But the uninterpretability comes from the fact that the product experience, like the main ones are money lines, point spreads and over unders. A money line on like the heat to beat the Celtics could be like minus 175, for example, which means you have to bet 175 to win 100. Those are kind of the units that you use or plus five and a half point spread or 49.5 O slash U, which means over under. And you're betting on like, will the total amount of points in a game be like over 49 and a half or under 49 and a half? So the fact that I even had to explain that to you is problematic, right? Like I thought it was highly problematic that the first time I opened up one of these gambling apps, I didn't know how to use it. And it spent like, I had to spend like 10 minutes on Google, like figuring out what a money line, a point spread and over under was. So, and, and, and I was like, and like, I'm not the smartest. I, I try not to be the smartest guy in any room I go into, but, um, I'm like an, like I was an Ivy league educated former daily fantasy sports operator. If anybody should have understood how to use a sports book, upon first using it, it would have been me and I couldn't use it. So I started simple bet to effectively build almost like the Robin hood to the gambling industries, E-Trade, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, like E-Trade built a really good, robust user experience for like the power day trader. But I felt like Robin hood through a combination of, as we know, like business model innovation with the zero commission trading, but also that simple, intuitive UI UX, they really built the first product that like anybody could just buy and sell stocks, right? Like from a user experience standpoint. And ultimately what happened was they created a lot of incremental TAM. There was a lot of people who weren't buying and selling stocks who now were because there was like this accessible consumer experience that they could go to. So my original idea for Simple Bet was to build like this direct-to-consumer Robinhood of gambling. And... um, a month after, so I started working on it as a project actually in Eastern Europe, which I could talk a little bit about that experience for about a year and a half because it wasn't legal in the United States. As I was there, I realized it was way better to come back to the U.S. Even if the U.S. wasn't legal yet for sports betting, it would be better to like be a U.S.-based venture-backed business like I did last time because it just venture capital works a lot better here. So came back to the U.S. We incorporated Simple Bet Inc. April 2018. Six weeks later, the Supreme Court repealed the federal ban on sports betting, and all of a sudden it started becoming legal here. And as a result of that, we decided to focus exclusively on U.S. sports, still direct-to-consumer, building these user experiences. And some of the ideas we had for U.S. sports were around enabling people to bet on, like, what's going to happen in the next pitcher at bat of a baseball game, next player drive of a football game, like the moments within U.S. sporting events. And that's when we went to the B2B technology companies and realized that a lot of the technical infrastructure to enable moment-to-moment betting on U.S. sports and other forms of sports betting 
uh, that would be really good for U.S. fans. It didn't exist, which made sense because the global marketplace wasn't the U.S. wasn't a part of it. And globally, the sport that that drove most consumption was soccer. And if you think of how how a soccer match works, it's a very fluid game without a lot of scoring, without really any moments to bet on. And U.S. sports are like the opposite. It's very stop and start moment to moment. A lot of scoring, statistics, speculation over superstar players and what they'll do next. So with Simple Bet, we had to start building a lot of machine learning and automation infrastructure to enable micro betting on U.S. sports and other forms of sports betting on that, that were bespoke to U.S. sports to exist. We had to do that out of necessity. And along the way, we realized that that was a wholly separate business of hiring like data engineers, data scientists, machine learning engineers, these, these you know, super specialized software engineers. And um, so we inadvertently built like this, this, it was a separate business and we started licensing the, te- the technology to other operators and we inadvertently built the, like the fast, one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing B2B technology company in online sports betting. The, the business, you know, currently powers DraftKings, uh, Caesars, wow. Bet365, Hard Rock, Betway. I mean, it's becoming increasingly ubiquitous across the the u.s online sports betting marketplace and you know if you go on DraftKings right now and you bet on like will the next possession in the nuggets heat game be like a two-pointer or a three-pointer or free throws like that's powered by simple bet and simple bets getting like a, a portion of the revenue so that's the background on simple bet and i bring that up because when i was sitting next to jeff Wu at that dinner i was working on that but it was around the time where i became very frustrated because while we built a really nice business as a B2B technology company. We had no purview into solving the initial problem that I wanted to solve, which is that consumer experience that is just so uninterpretable and not engaging to a casual sports fan. And I couldn't solve it at SimpleBet anymore because if we launched a, um, if we launched a our own D2C brand or app or whatever, we our B2B customers like DraftKings would have just told us to fuck off, like you're competing against us now. So I had to spin out a new entity. That was ultimately the sort of elegant solution we came up with, and I was in the process of thinking through how to do that. And um, that was also right around the time that Jeff and Jake were thinking about maybe doing some more company incubation instead of just traditional venture investing. And... Um, and then, and I think they were actually like recently looking at sports betting as an opportunity because you're, I'm sure you're familiar with like Barstool Sports and Dave Portnoy, and they had a lot of success partnering with Penn and going after the sports betting opportunity and ultimately not paying a lot of money for customers because they have this media audience and brand affinity. Um, so Jake was already thinking about the category a little bit, and they were also thinking about doing more company incubation. And I mean, up until that point that, you know, I was in the journey for like six, seven years and trying to solve this problem. And I built this B2B technology company that built a lot of the rec- a lot of the requisite technical infrastructure I needed to go ahead and properly execute it, you know, prosecute the problem that I wanted to solve. And we just started talking about working together on this. And um, ultimately, after a few months of, of discussing it and um, you know, Jake actually first invested in SimpleBed, and then we spun out the entity and created um, created ultimately what 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 better became. Nice, nice. So now that you've had experience on both building a B two B company as well as a B two C company in this VC tech space, what would you say are the pros and cons to both? 
Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I would say when you're building a B2B business, you have a fewer amount of, I guess you kind of have a fewer amount of operator clients that like when we're building a consumer business, we're building something for everybody, right? Like there's, you know, sports betting is legal in about 30 states right now. So there's about 90 million gambling age sports fans that are technically in our total addressable market when, you know, states like California, Texas, Florida go live and most of the country opens up, there'll be probably around 200 million gambling age sports fans. That will be our total addressable market. When you're building a B2B business, the customers that mattered in our case were like FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, Caesars, and those four account for like 80 to 90% of the entire market. So it's a very different mentality and you know, one of the counterintuitive things that I sort of identified and struggled with, with, you know, some others who I've been doing business with is that a lot of people would say B2B is way safer and less risky than B2C because B2C has all these incremental expenses. You have to acquire customers. In my industry, you have to get market access and licensing And these are like not trivial expenses in real money gambling in the United States. So a lot of people were like, it's way too risky to do direct to consumer. And, but the counterintuitive point to that is it's arguably even more risky to be B2B because there's only a handful of executives at a handful of companies that are sort of controlling your destiny. And I didn't love that. I felt like, I felt like I, I, I've been right all along about my product vision and I want consumers and the marketplace, like the broader marketplace to ultimately be like the arbiter of truth here, right? And 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 with B2B, I, I, I actually counterintuitively felt like it was even riskier than B2C. However, um, you know, SimpleBet's done a phenomenal job of de-risking its path to success by getting DraftKings and Caesars and Hard Rock and Bet365, which is the leading global operator, and some of the other, you know, clients that they've gotten. Um, I think Better's done a really good job of de-risking against some of the, you know, problems that or some of the challenges that I identified to you because, you know, we're building a bona fide media business that is building, you know, a real audience and a real brand such that we're not paying a material amount of money for customers and customer acquisition is the primary expense and we're demonstrating in real time that we're capable of validating this low to no CAC thesis. You know, FanDuel and DraftKings and and the incumbents, they spend anywhere from high hundreds to low thousands per real money gaming customer. We're not paying money for customers. And we even started experimenting with paid UA, like spending a little bit on Twitter ads, for example. And we're noticing that even on paid UA, our customer acquisition cost is a lot lower. Like it's a seventy, it's a sub seventy dollar CAC right now because we have the, like this halo effect around our brand. If you're on Twitter and you see a better ad, you're you're like, oh, I, I've, I'm less familiar with better. I've seen their content around, so you're more inclined to, to yep. convert. Um, so we've de-risked the the customer acquisition narrative. We or the customer acquisition issue, we've um, market access. One of the first things I did when starting better was brought in like the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians as a partner in the business um, to mitigate that upfront market access expense because they own casinos in the Southeast and in the United States. And 
by giving them equity instead of having to pay tens of millions of dollars for licenses it, or market access to get licenses, it de-risks that expense. So my Smart. point is there's ways. I, one of the things that I've had to learn as an entrepreneur is that when there's problems and challenges that seem insurmountable, oftentimes those represent some of the best opportunities to create value. Yep. So I think both businesses have done a good job of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you wouldn't say there is any one specific thing that that you would lean towards of, of building. There's there's just pros. And I cons love consumer. Both. I personally I mean, for everybody, it's different. Like it depends on what your motivations are. Right. Like if you're motivated by I don't know. I mean, you can make a ton of money in both categories. I think consumer businesses inherently have higher financial upside in most cases there's some industries where like picks and shovels businesses are just the best financial outcomes but um consumer i i just want i prefer the marketplace to be the arbiter of truth here like i want to win amongst the broad marketplace and consumers and create incremental tam yep. um in a marketplace where I think there's plenty of room for incremental TAM. I mean, one, one interesting stat about my industry that I'll share is, and people don't realize this, like, so, and again, sports betting is only legal in 30 states right now, and the big states, California, Texas, and Florida, have not legalized it yet. So despite all of that, in 2022, there was more money spent by consumers on gambling on sports than there was in ride-sharing on cups of coffee on streaming more on betting on sports and we're just like in the top of the second of this industry so my point is you have this massive industry and you have these incumbents FanDuel and DraftKings they're worth 20 and 10 billion dollars respectively but they're tapping out at about 3 million monthly active users while they're already in front of 90 million gambling age sports fans and they'll be in front of 200 million gambling age sports fans at market maturity. And I don't think they have a brand awareness problem. As I alluded to earlier, back in the day, they were advertising like car insurance companies. And today they're still advertising like car insurance companies, except they're probably not as funny with their content. But they're, uh, they don't have a brand awareness problem. They have a product problem. So if I'm right, and I think I am, and there's been some validation along the way to prove that I'm right, but I think I'm really right about the big problem in this category, which is what will unlock that 3 million MAUs to that 90 to 200. And I'm not saying all of them like will or should be gambling on sports, but I'm, but you know, there's 25 to 50 million MAUs in this TAM that I think are, are doable. Mm-hmm. Um, so my point is with consumer, there's like a huge opportunity to do that. Whereas with your B2B, you're beholden to the existing guys that are operating in that 3 million MAUs to drive the, to, 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 to get that incremental TAM themselves. And I just don't like that lack of control. Like I think I'm, I'm a good entrepreneur and an operator and, and, and I think I'm really right about the product vision. So I should therefore be the one to execute against that vision and, and see it through uh, fully with as much control as I can. Got it. Got it. So walk me through your day in the life right now as a as a as a CEO of a of a tech company like what what is your my daily routine yeah what's your daily routine what does it look like five a.m. cold plunge <laughs> no 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 nothing like that um I uh, we spoke a little bit about this before yeah. I um I'm like pretty non negotiable about my sleep I think that's the most important thing so. I try to get eight to 10 hours a night. There's some days where it's just not possible. Like I have so much going on the next day and it's like, I it just, I can't move it. But I'm getting to a point where it's like, 
it's becoming increasingly more non-negotiable. So sleep eight to 10 hours a night. And the reason why I do this, and I was telling you earlier, it's um, a lot of it just, it's math, right? Like, are you really gonna, I get paid for like my brain power. That's like what, like I, I need my brain at a hundred percent capacity to ultimately make the best decisions and, you know, collaborate with my team to execute against this business. So why would I sacrifice, why would I go from like a hundred percent brain power to potentially like 75% brain ta- power to like pack in one or two extra meetings? <laughs> like it just doesn't make sense when, when you're, when you're generally awake for like, you know, 16 hours a, a day. Yeah. Right. Um, so eight to 10 hours of sleep, I'll wake up in the morning. Um, I'll do, uh, you know, an, an hour walk in the sun to like get moving and get some sunlight and, and, and then I'll, I'll, uh, you know, take a shower and go to the office and I'm and, and we have a warehouse here in Miami, a 20,000 square feet space where half of it is for content creation, half of it's for business operations. And, and I'm just fucking grinding in the in the warehouse, man. Uh, pretty much almost every hour that I'm awake, um, unless I have like a meeting or yeah. I, like come here and, and do your podcast <laughs> and uh, do things like that. But um, and and it's it's totally f- I love what I do, man. Like I I like yeah. I mean, I know this yeah. is a public podcast and whatever, but I'd be I, I'd kind of be doing this shit for free, right? I love I like I so it's not a problem that I'm kind of in there for like 12, 10 to twelve hours a day, and and that's a day, man, right? And like people sometimes are like, "How are you doing?" Whatever, like making small talk, and and like the main response I give, and this sounds like super fucking lame, but it's the truth, is like you want to know how I'm doing? Read my last shareholder update. <laughs> like it's all in there, you know, uh, for hey, better or for worse. See you in this, in yeah, this company like that. Meeting. Like yeah. that's how I'm doing, man. Yeah. Like I'm I'm just very because I've as as you probably got from sort of the background and and you know I, I'm. I've been working on the same problem for my entire adult life, like technically since I was a teenager and it's, uh, and, and I'm finally at a place right now where I feel like we're gonna, like I, I, we have the requisite ingredients in place to, to win and to, and, and most importantly, not just for me and my company and winning ourselves, but really to give, sports fans in this country, like the first mainstream product experience that really enhances their consumption of sports. And, you know, we live in a world of like sports politics and religion. And of the three, I think sports is the one that like is more universally like it's it's less polar. I mean, it's polarizing, but in like a more harmless way, right? Like yeah. Red Sox fans will, you know, scream at Yankees fans and vice versa. But it's like, it's, um, it's like a it's like arguably the predominant form of entertainment in the world and we have an opportunity to be the biggest company in the space so i think this could be a really big company that provides a lot of like the light and entertainment value to hundreds of millions of people globally over the long run so it's a big i i i take the potential of doing that very seriously and you know we we have an incredible team most of whom have moved to Miami and um, and it's just a it's a great place to, to work and, and and to build this thing why did you choose Miami to to live to work from what are what are the pros there's a lot of pros man I um, so I, as I mentioned I'm from South Florida and when I was growing up down here I never thought that 
I could come back and be like a like work here. <laughs> like it was like this place wasn't a place known for doing like business or tech on. I mean, business in the from the standpoint of like tourism and hospitality and things like that, but never but like not Silicon Valley. Yeah, you know? like not Silicon Valley. I never thought that. Um, I remember. So I mentioned that I was doing draft pod and, you know, I was in New York cause I was like a, you know, there for Columbia and dropped out and stayed there. And I, I was in Eastern Europe for a little bit doing the, a project that ultimately became simple bet. And I remember when I came back to the U S and we formed the company in New York, I actually wanted to th- form it in Miami. Potentially I, I couldn't do it cause my two co-founders were like, early to mid fifties at the time with like families and homes there. And I was like 22 with like no real excuse to, to be anywhere. (laughs) So we did it in New York, but I had like a little bit of dough to like get a very small place on the side in Miami, mostly because I wanted to like spend a little bit more time with my family. Like I was doing this entrepreneurial thing. Like you, you know how it is. Like sometimes you burn out a little bit. I like wanted a little place to like see my family. And I just noticed that every time I would come back down to Miami, I was in a way better mood. <laughs> like, and there's probably a few reasons, right? Like the sunlight, the weather. Um, I also felt, I also feel like Miami has like a lot more, openness towards intellectual diversity if that makes sense like i have some not to be i I don't like publicly talking about politics but like i i have i have a few conservative viewing political views and i would feel like sometimes timid to like say what i really thought in new york or san francisco because people will like you'll, you'll get ostracized. Whereas in Miami, it's like you could have a conversation and like, it's more middle of the road, 50, 50. Uh, so there were a lot of reasons that I just was in a better mood in Miami. And I always told myself after simple bet, I would want to start my next company here. And I remember telling, um, you know, you know, Zaid, my, uh, my partner on three or five ventures, shout out Zaid. Um, so he, I met him for the first time in Miami. Uh, it was new year's Eve. I was holding a little thing at my place with some of the other Teal fellows. He was one of them that I met him through that. And, um, and you know, we were doing, it was like end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And I remember telling him and some other people there, and this is after spending a little bit more time in Miami. Um, I said Miami was going to be a tech hub one day. I don't know when, but like this place is awesome. Like the quality of life, um, the cost of living relative to New York and SF. I mean, that's you you own real estate here. So that's like, you know that it's changed really quickly, but it's still relatively cheaper, I think, than than SFLA in New York. And, um, you know, then, then of course there's the financial situation where you have no state income tax, which is a big deal. So... Before Keith Raboy, Delian, Mayor Suarez, whatever, before they were tweeting. And by the way, I think it's amazing how they got so much enthusiasm about, you know, people being in Miami. And but but I've been saying for a while, I thought this place would be a tech hub. And 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 there isn't like an iconic consumer business that's come out of Miami. I think the closest thing to it is Chewy and Broward County. They're like the pet brand yep. that um, has done really well. So that's it. Right. So I kind of obsessed with building like a big consumer company out of Miami. And, um, I also don't believe in remote work. So 
I've had to, you know, go through the, the challenge or the opportunity of relocating people to Miami and for whatever it's worth, it seems like everybody who's moved here loves it. And Miami's not the particular, it's, it's not particularly the hardest place to convince somebody to move. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of reasons, man. Yeah. And it's worked yeah. out really well for us. I remember I, I was living in LA in 2020, 2020, 2021. And this is during all of the lockdowns. LA got really bad. And one of my friends was like, hey, you should come to Miami for a weekend, February of 2021. Okay. And I was like, you know, why not? Like, it's just nothing to do in L.A. anyways. Well, I was going to say February 21 is like one of the, uh, there, there was nobody, nowhere else open. Correct. In, in the U.S. Yeah. And so I, and I had just gotten COVID yeah. from literally not leaving my house December of 2020. So I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm immune. So I yeah. go to Miami, February of 2021. And I remember when I stepped foot here, I was absolutely shocked like right when i land the airport beautiful woman walking around everyone in the airport yeah it's sunny it's bright people are walking around with no mask and i yeah. was like i was like what is this world it felt like i was in a new world because from not going out for an entire year and that was that was when my eyes opened about miami and it's like what you said i saw great weather they had great food and that's when i really saw the potential in miami and I, and I went for one week and I ended up staying for four months. And that's kind of how I, I got stuck in Miami. And now what's your perspective now? You're, you're, you're planting. I mean, you, you bought this place, yeah. right? So you're, you're, you think you're going to be here long-term? Yeah, definitely minimum, at least the next three to five years. Okay. I, I mean, obviously as I eventually start a family and stuff, maybe I'll go more North to Palm beach, uh, or coconut Grove, but you know, 27 definitely want to stay in Miami more, but I think there's just so much potential, right? Because I'm sure you know this being in business as well, you want to go where something is, is you want to go with the future trends, right? That's, that's how you do something big. And there's been a huge exodus year over year from LA, New York, SF, and they're moving to places like Texas. A lot of people are moving to Miami and just South Florida in general. Yeah. So if, if we believe that that's the hypothesis, eventually everyone's going to come here. So you, you want a head start if you do before home prices go yeah. crazy, before, you know, meeting the right people and stuff. You want to be early on these trends. And so I think right now is the best time to be in Miami. Yeah, no, it's it kind of like big fish in a pond that's like in the process of becoming really fucking big, but not quite there yet, right? Yep. Yeah, I get that. So, yeah, Miami is, is the spot. So I, I know you said earlier you don't believe in remote work. Yeah. Would love to I mean, it could, it could, it could work in some cases and, yeah. and, and, you know, I, um, I should be careful how I articulate this because we <laughs> actually just bought a company in Canada that's working remotely right now. So <laughs> technically half the company is now working remotely as a result of that acquisition. And, um, and it's been going really well actually. So, um, I think there's certain functions that could be remote like certain engineering functions i think also on the revenue and sales side some of the best work is a lot of if not if not most of the best work is done on the road selling um you know like for example better like better is a bona fide gaming business and a media business so on the media side we um the the number one objective for better media is audience growth to inform the number two objective which is 
converting that audience over to real money gaming customers so that we have low to no CAC, but to truly enable low to no CAC, because the counterpoint to that would be, well, you're investing millions of dollars in this media company. That's not low to no CAC. But what if you monetize the media company directly? So so priority number three is generating revenue off the media company. And, Smart. you know, I didn't bring my my Celsius energy drink, any energy drink can, but Celsius is a sponsor, for example. And, you know, a better, so, a, a better, better media. a better media. Nice. Yeah. So nice. um, so my point is like, now we're thinking more seriously about being methodical around our, our media sales, you know, partnerships and, and revenue approach. So there's probably gonna be a world where there's gonna be a few people involved, like selling, being on the road, meeting with brands or whatever. So my point is there there's some cases where remote is it makes sense or is a requirement. We we also have an engineering office in Cluj, Romania, where we have a dozen engineers there and you know, but the, but so you have we have like 28 engineers in Canada, a dozen engineers in Cluj, so that's 40, and then but 40 people in Miami. So I, I guess my to correct myself, I don't want to say like I don't want to be like there's, there's pros and cons. There's right? pros and cons. Yeah. I don't want to like make a sweeping generalization that like I don't believe in remote work or it doesn't work. However, Elon Musk does though. <laughs> when it, when when just just to be clear, like I think the real answer is when you can innate when when if if all else is like perfect and e- or equal or whatever like you you want people to work on site and because a lot of the value that I'm like the better way to articulate this is that I view what we're doing as like like not to make our shit sound more important than it is, but like this is very much like soldiers in an army, hand-to-hand combat type shit. Like particularly for what we're doing, it, we're embarking upon a series of David versus Goliath matchups everywhere we go. Like, you know, one of the things that you may ask about and probably saw is like better raised a $50 million series A, for example. And a lot of people, we're like, wow, that's a big Series A. That's a lot of money. You guys are going to crush it. You're going to be successful. You're really good at raising money, blah, 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 all that shit. But the, that's an incorrect perspective. The correct perspective is, and I'll give you context before I give you the perspective, but just in January, just in Ohio, just off promotional bonuses, not even paid UA, just promotional bonuses, FanDuel and DraftKings, there are 14 other companies in the market, but FanDuel and DraftKings combined for over $150 million in promo bonuses just in just that month, just in Ohio, which is more than three times my entire equity financing for my wow. entire company. And I'm building two companies in one. I'm building a gaming business and a media business. So my point is, like on the capital raising that I brought up, it's like the the correct response is 50. The question is, should it should be is 50 million enough to do what you're doing? That's that's that, that's the first question. But relatedly, I give you that perspective because it's truly a series of David versus Goliath matchups that we're embarking upon. And for us to win, we need to build something truly differentiated and really achieve greatness on both the product side and the distribution side. And I'm just skeptical, like the people doing that can do that over Zoom and Slack. Yeah. And that's why we're we're all here to, together, or almost all of us are here together doing this thing. And um, 
you know, but there's certain realities where, you know, the, the 28 engineers that, that we brought in from Canada and the, the 12 engineers that we, 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 you know, have in our, in our Romanian office, they're incredible people with incredible skill sets and, and, and have done a, a really great job for the business so far. And so now investing in making that remote structure with them as, um, seamless as possible and embedding them in the company culture to the greatest extent we can. Um, as you know, I, as the CEO continue to, you know, earn the trust and respect of, of these individuals is, is increasingly becoming a priority for me. Um, but ideally you're all together, um, working together if you're really trying to build something great together. Yep. What advice would you have for a first time founder? just starting out especially in today's day and age um i um so so i i've recently reflected on some of my entrepreneurial journey because i'm like and i was talking to you a little bit more about this i like i'm doing more of these like uh public interviews and podcasts (laughs) and shit like that because it's like good for the business and I, but it's also forced me to like reflect on like questions like this. Cause I've never really like, I've been so in the weeds on my shit. I've never like <laughs> thought about that. Um, but, but I, I sort of came to like, there's three main things that I, that are like key values that I would recommend to a first time entrepreneur, um, that are true to first or second or third or fifth time founders or whatever. So the first thing, and this is an order from least important to most important. So first thing is you got to be smart enough to identify opportunities before they become obvious to others. As an entrepreneur, it's hard to create value if you're just doing something else that somebody else is doing, but like a little bit better, like a slightly better mousetrap is not where you create like, and, and, and by the way, as a founder, you don't necessarily have to raise VC money, but if you're going after like that venture opportunity where you provide outsized returns, you gotta think about if the problem you're solving and if you're right, will that outcome be, is there something about you and your personal experiences that makes you have conviction that like, holy shit, this is going to be a really big opportunity, but it's not obvious to others yet. And there's actually reasons why it's not obvious to others. And that's very much been my story, right? Like I remember I was laughed out of rooms when I started pivoting simple bet from this Robin hood of gambling vision to B2B technology company to enable micro betting. I was laughed out of rooms because people were like, well, you know, micro betting accounts for less than 1% of the total betting volume globally. Like why are you, are going to burn a shit ton of investor money by like building, hiring all these like engineers to build infrastructure to enable micro betting when it's such a small part of the marketplace. It was obvious to me that micro betting was going to be a big deal in the United States because I like was a young U.S. sports fan who like intuitively understood that the cadence and composition of U.S. sports was very different than soccer, right? Like moment to moment, a lot of scoring. It, it just micro betting lent itself very well to U.S. sports, whereas soccer didn't. So it was kind of obvious to me, but to most people who are just looking at data at the time, it wasn't obvious to them. So, so that was an example. And we ended up, and, and now micro betting 
two or three years after like broader commercialization of it is it it, it went from sub one percent in the U.S. Now it's like thirty percent of in play betting. So wow. we were very right about that. Um, and it's and we're in the top of the first inning for micro betting. I think it's going to be a lot higher than thirty percent of in play over time. Um, so that's point one. Point two, which is the thing that I think most people struggle with, is it's really important, I think, to be humble enough to admit to and learn from mistakes. Like a lot of first-time founders, and I made this mistake too when I was a first-time founder, um, you like, you kind of have, like going through school, it embeds this fear of failure, right? You got to get like 90% more right on everything you're doing to like get an A minus or an A. So you have like this fear of failure. And I think like the institute, like the academic institutions don't help with this. So what happens is when you're trying to build a new product or service or technology, you have such imperfect information and there's a lot of uncertainty and you're inevitably going to like go down paths that are mistakes. But a lot of times the ego of the first time founder is such that they it, it takes them longer to admit to and ultimately learn from these mistakes because they don't want to admit that they were wrong. And if I could go back and tell my like first time founder self, like there was like hills that I was willing to die on that I like shouldn't have, that shouldn't have been my perspective. I should have been more agile and and willing to admit to mistakes. Um, And then the third thing, I would say to a first time founder is, is the most important thing is just being determined enough to never give up. Um, like when you're an entrepreneur and I'm sure this resonates really well with you too, there's hundreds or even thousands of little things or seemingly insurmountable things that will just come your way and, and, and be challenges that you didn't even anticipate going into this. You didn't even know this shit existed. And if you're not sufficiently determined, one of those things is, or a series of those things is going to have you give up. But if, but like my mentality on this is like, I'm never going to give up. I'm not going to stop until I win. And, um, and, and I think that level of determination in startups where inherently the odds are definitely stacked up against you, you need a sufficient level of determination to, to be successful, I think. Nice, 100%. I feel like that's all those things are spot on, especially if you want to push through the, you know, the chasm where most people drop off. So, yeah. What are your thoughts? I mean, there were, sorry to cut you off, but there were like literally like five, 10 moments I could probably identify where it like simple bet should have died, for example. And like the founding team just wouldn't let it happen. Yep. And it now is like a nine figure valuation business. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's funny you brought that up. Cause I, I think the same way I can probably count five no brainer times where it should have just, yeah, been, my dead. Company <laughs> just been dead, yeah. you know, like where everything was going wrong. People were leaving cause team morale was so low yeah. company was losing money. And then you just, you power through and you figure it out. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on the importance of going to college still nowadays? Yeah, it's a great question. I um, I don't know, man. I, I think um, it's not for everybody. I mean, some of the most successful people obviously didn't 
go to college or finish college. Um, you know, honestly, when I was out there like raising money for DraftPod, which ultimately started my entire entrepreneurial journey, I I would say one of the biggest sources of, of value that I got from my college experience was the fact that, you know, I had a good enough SAT scores and GPA to get into Columbia. So people just assumed I was smart because I went to Columbia, <laughs> right? So it's like the credibility that the institutions prescribe to you is valuable but oftentimes the actual content that comes as a result of the education is not particularly what you need to be successful if i I would say the three things smart humble determination like those are the those are the muscles you should you know put yourself in the arena in and and start flexing to, to get better at but um so it's not for everyone. I mean, but then there's benefits too, right? Like I was a history major and actually like I could sit here and talk shit about like how useless that shit is. But actually I read a lot and I wrote a lot and history is a big fucking story, man, of, um, of, uh, you know, it, just everything that's happened in the past and then articulating, you know, those different stories and gaining insights from those stories and, you know, like the cliche Steve Jobs quote is like the most powerful man in the world is the storyteller, right? So reading, writing, articulating, these are really important things to be a leader in business. So if anything, if if, if you go to college, like consider being a history major or an English major or look into some of the liberal arts um, disciplines. But, um, you know, I got some benefits from college and, and, but I don't, I don't think it's for everybody. And I, and I think the, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot more expensive than it should be. I think they really got to get the cost under control so that it's not prohibitively expensive for, um, for, for people who want to go to college. Yep. Nice, man. Well, I think we covered quite a ton. So I appreciate you coming on today's podcast, sharing your story. I'm excited to see what you do with Better and Jake. So, uh, yeah, and, and I'll stop by the warehouse one of these days, man. Yeah, no, would love to have you, man. Th- thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, and good luck with the with the with the podcast.